Hello, everyone. I'm Sierra. And I'm Ashley. And this is your Weekly Weekly Dose Dose of Wicked. Good day, my friends. Welcome to another week where we spend an hour laughing at nothing, talking about murder, and having a grand old time. All right, so let's get down to business, shall we, Ashley? We shall. I was going to say first things first, but then you were going to say, I'm the realist. I think you do that. I don't think that's me. <laughs> it's true. True, true, true. First order of business. We have very, very, very exciting news. Very exciting. Perhaps the most exciting news we've ever had in the history of our podcast in the 10 episodes we've produced. I can't wait to hear. I have no idea what it is. You do know what it is. (laughs) Don't be stupid. Anyway, so as we do begin most of our episodes, we're going to talk about the Patreon. It's a fun little place. It is a fun little place. And something epic has happened in the Patreon today. Something monumental. What is it, Sierra? We've received our very first non-family member Patreon member. Woo! Whoop, 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 whoop. That was weird. I don't know why I did that. Because <laughs> you're a weirdo. Anyway, I'm going to do the drum roll. You're going to announce the member. You ready? I was going to ask. Drum roll, please. Oh, but you it. ruined that on me. Do it. Drum roll, please, Sierra. Welcoming Melissa Greenwald to the Extraordinarily Wicked Patreon. You're now a whoop. pepperoni patroni. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Welcome, our little pepperoni patroni. In case any of you don't know, that's our nickname for our patroni, patroni, our Patreon members. Well, they're uh, actually called patrons, but we don't like that name. Well, right, they are called patrons. But I was saying our Patreon members. If you join our Patreon, Patreon, you become members. a they become yes. a pepperoni patroni because we don't like patrons. And if we call them patreons, that's not grammatically correct. So we came up with the nickname pepperoni patronis. Our Patreon members don't even know that yet, though, because that bonus episode hasn't been released. So Ooh. cats out of the bag. <laughs> well, they'll find out whenever we edit that. I think I'm going to upload them on Friday. Anyway, thank you to Melissa Greenwalt. Our love for you burns with the intensity of a thousand suns, as it does for all of our pepperoni patronis. Welcome. All of our listeners in general, actually. That's true, but I have a special love for our Patreons. So I mean, we have five now. Woohoo! Whoop, 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 whoop. All right. So anyway, Ashley, how do they find our Patreon? Are you prepared for that question this week? Ooh, let's see. Patreon.com slash Weekly Dose of Wicked. True, true. Or you can just search Weekly Dose of Wicked on Patreon. Yeah, head on over there. We got lots of fun stuff going on. Um, We just recorded a whole series on I Just Killed My Dad. Those episodes will be up on Friday. I'm releasing them on a Friday in case any of our current Pepperoni Patronis want to binge the show over the weekend if they haven't watched it yet. So essentially, it's just us discussing the, the episodes. There's three of them. There's three bonus episodes. Not sure how long we'll each end up being because I haven't finished editing, but probably about 20, 30 minutes each. Head on over. Uh, we also have some bonus episodes in the works coming out. Um, I'll be recording a bonus episode to be released the last week of September. Ashley's recording one to be released. Well, I don't know when they're coming out, but we've got two set to be recorded in the next two weeks, and they'll be released. Head on over to the Patreon. You like what you see, our base tier, the moderately wicked, just five measly dollars a month. Literally the cost of a cup of coffee. Actually less than a cup of coffee. I got a spice latte today. It was $7. I believe it. Was it a small? That's ridiculous. No, it was a large, of course, but still. Okay. Well, I was just thinking Starbucks is overpriced, so. 
Anyway, no, it was seven dollars. Three tiers. Worth it. I'm sure it probably was, but you know what? I got some pumpkin spice creamer for my house and it's just as good. Not true. Can you hear my stomach? No. Okay. It's being real loud. I just want to make sure. I think we should be sponsored by Starbucks. Uh, they'll never sponsor us. No, but we sure talk about them enough. You talk about them enough. And their pumpkin spice lattes. Yeah, because I love their pumpkin spice lattes. I don't talk about Starbucks because I don't like Starbucks. Anyway, moving on. Today at work. Hold on. This is funny. Is it about Starbucks? Don't roll your eyes at me. Yes. Okay. Not today at work. Yesterday at work. Um, My coworker bought me a pumpkin muffin because she knows how much I love pumpkin. And we were talking about pumpkin and I was like, I am a whore for pumpkin spice. I will do just about anything for pumpkin spice. And my male coworker turned around and he said, what the fuck is wrong with you? And just turned back around and continued to work. <laughs> that is funny. Okay, anyways, continue. Makes me think of on Saturday when I told my husband I would do anything for Panda Express. And he chose to use that as the opportune time to dunk me in the pool. <laughs> he could have anything and he dunked me in the pool. That's what he wanted at that moment. Ridiculous. Anyway, moving on. Next, we have the $7 level, the moderately wicked. Last, the $10 level, the level of all levels, the high rollers, the biggest pepperoni patronis, 10 bucks, the extraordinarily wicked, where you get all kinds of extra stuff. So anyway, just check it out. Head on over. All kinds. Hang on, head on over. Check it out. Next order of business. It's now the portion of the episode where we beg you to leave us a review. Please. Please. We're poor. Let me just... <laughs> What does having a review have to do with being poor? You know that little thingy where he like holds out his hands and he's like, please give me some soup, I'm poor. Not what he says. That is what he says. He says porridge. No, what are you talking about? Yeah, but he's like, please, sir, may I have some more porridge? He doesn't say anything about being poor. Okay. I have no idea what that means. Anyway. <laughs> Don't Roberto. roll your eyes at me. Beg again without, without saying you're poor because I had nothing to do with the reviews. <laughs> Maybe I've had too many beers. <laughs> <laughs> They are 8%, you know. I'm going to go ahead and just get on my knees now and grovel. If you could please find it in your heart to head on over to Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a rating and review, it would mean the world to us. We're now up to 17 ratings and six reviews. Even if you don't want to leave us a five star, that's fine. Maybe you only like us a little. You want to leave us a four star. That's fine. Go for it. I don't care. Any rating or review will work. Even if you hate us, I prefer you didn't. But if you hate us, go ahead and leave us a review. It might be funny. Uh, it'll probably be very funny all right moving on instagram head on over to instagram where you can follow us at weekly weekly underscore i thought you were letting me do it i was gonna let you do it but you just seem to be drunk so i wasn't sure if i was gonna do everything myself or not go ahead (laughs) weekly underscore dose underscore of underscore wicked we also have a very exciting announcement we have a facebook page Yes, we now have a Facebook page for those of you who don't have Instagram. So if you've been missing out on all of the visual content that we post over there on Instagram, you can now head on over to Facebook where you can find us at Weekly Dose of Wicked. All of our content from Instagram will be mirrored onto the Facebook page, so you'll never have to miss out on a post again. And we have posted all of our previous content that we posted on the Instagram. This is true. All right, I think that's all we have for announcements. So let's jump into it. I have a very exciting case for you this week. Very excited. I know you are. It's the one you requested. Three weeks ago. Oh, I would also like to say, so I'm willing to, um, if anyone cares, I don't know if this is an enticing enough little treat, but I posted in the Patreon that our current Patreon members got to pick a case. So back over to that little tidbit, right? So I posted in the Patreon, our Patreon members got to pick a case. So if you're currently in our Patreon and you haven't picked your case yet, please do so. Only one person has. Yes, only one of our Patreon members has picked. Now our newest Patreon member hasn't had a chance yet, but... 
uh, Melissa Greenwalt. If you're listening, then go on over there and pick your case. Go on. Whatever you want, we will cover it. She has had a whole two hours. Okay, well, now that being said, I'm willing to leave that open until we have 10 Patreons. The first 10 people to join the Patreon, I also need to go back. That's only for the Extraordinarily Wicked level, the $10 level. Because one of the perks of that level is voting on cases. I don't feel like it's fair to do a vote when there's only four or five people in there because it's not really a very fair vote. So I let them each pick their own case, and they also get to pick which one of us does the case. So if that's something that intrigues you, head on over to Patreon, join. Anyway, all right, moving on for real. Okay. Uh, This week, I'm going to give you a real meaty case. Meaty? Big, juicy ribeye. All right, let's go. This is the case of Peter Porco. Ashley requested this case because she's a psychopath. Psychopath? Why do you keep calling me that? Because you scare me a little bit. Watch out. That's all I gotta say. I'm not afraid of you. You should be. No. All right, so we're gonna start this episode with a little lesson in crime. I know most people that listen to our podcast are probably well-versed in true crime. They know terminology, but we do have some members who have no idea what's going on. They're new to the true crime world. They only listen because they love us. Yes, we've converted them, such as dad, who said, I was a crime junkie and I didn't even know it. And my mother-in-law, who said, I'm not a crime junkie, but I think I'm turning into one. All right, so the first term here, white-collar crime. Ashley, do you know what that is? I do. That's like a money-based crime. Typically yes. like embezzlement, um, fraud. Okay. I've got I've got all the examples later. I just want to know if you know what I meant. I'm, of course I know what I meant. Okay, well, I don't know. You didn't know what a felony murder was. Neither did you. We had to Google it. <laughs> I know. Anyway, white-collar crime is a crime motivated by money. According to FBI.gov, while white-collar crimes are nonviolent crimes, they are not victimless. White-collar crimes can ruin a company, and they can also ruin lives. Examples of white-collar crime include, but are not limited to, embezzlement, mortgage fraud, corporate fraud, money laundering, bribery or extortion, mass marketing fraud, etc. Now, when a white-collar crime takes a violent turn, it then becomes a... Red-collar crime. Good job, class. Essentially, a red-collar crime is a crime motivated by money that turns ugly. Or better yet, deadly. Pretty much all red-collar crimes turn deadly. (sighs) So usually, the victim of these crimes has caught on to the perpetrator. And most likely, they've threatened to expose them. And therefore, the only way out is for the red-collar criminal to murder in order to better conceal their criminal activity. All right, now that we've had that little lesson, I want to talk to you about Peter Pork. The story starts when it was hot and it was summertime. I had it all. I had him right there where I wanted him. She came along, got him alone. <laughs> Let's hear the I'm applause. Just, she took him faster than you can say sabotage. Yeah, okay. I'm just joking. Serious. Back to my seriousness. That was a Taylor Swift song. <clears throat> I may have been drinking a twisted tea when I wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the it. actual the actual story begins on September sixteenth of two thousand and four. Oh, my birthday! No, September. Did 16th. I say September? Yeah, I didn't mean that. Okay, <laughs> back back up. The actual story begins on November sixteenth, two thousand and four. Not my birthday. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Peter Porco, fifty two, did not show up at his place of employment. He was a court clerk in New York, working specifically for the state appellate division his colleagues immediately knew that something was off because it wasn't like peter not to show up for work especially 
with no call. So one of his coworkers headed on over to check on Peter at his home at 36 Broccoli Drive in Del Mar, New York. I love that name. I do too, but it is unfortunately not spelled broccoli like the vegetable. It's B-R-O-C-K-L-E-Y. Well, you know, at least it sounds the same. Yeah. So anyway, 36 Broccoli Drive, if you're one of those people that likes to look up houses. I did look up the house. Um, It's a very cute four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, a little over 2,000 square feet. Definitely a nice house. Um, It doesn't scream drowning in money. It just looks like they live a comfortable life. I would like to pause and take note that according to public records on this house, it was sold in October of 2005. On October 31st, to be exact. And that's just 11 months after these events took place. I thought that was a little strange. Maybe. I would also like to say, make note that it was bought for $260,000, which to me is a lot of money for a murder house. Yeah, but some people like that stuff. I was watching this fun little show. Yes, yes, I know you were. Okay. Murder House Makeover or whatever it's called. Yeah, is that what it's called? I don't know what it's called. And the first episode is these this couple that lived in, um, I don't remember her name, but she was a serial killer. Okay. Anyways. Um, she lived in, or they lived in her house, and they were, like, really happy about it. They were like, yeah, so right here in this yard, there were three bodies buried, and over here in this yard, there was one body buried, and over here, and, like, they were really excited about where the bodies were buried in the yard. So they don't find that exciting. And they made the guest bedroom that she held the people in before she killed them their main bedroom of the house, so they could sleep there. I don't like that. Not a fan. No. Okay, the issue that I have with this house, you'll see, but it was a very gruesome scene, and I just don't know that I'd ever want to live there. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Moving along. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it could very well be that one of the family members bought it. I don't know, but I just thought it was interesting that it was sold in 2005. Maybe it was remortgaged. I don't know. Regardless, someone lives in the house. Okay, makes sense. So, upon arriving at Peter's house, which he shared with his wife, Joan Porco, age 54, um immediately upon arriving there were signs that things are not good inside for starters there's a key in the front door i would like to mention this because um it's not a set of keys it's a single solitary key on a rubber band so it's not like somebody unlocked the door with their house key and left them in the door it's a single key like when you would leave in a plant yes exactly um also the door is ajar it's not closed and there are drops of blood on the front steps so this coworker pushes the door open, and immediately upon entering the home, at the bottom of the stairs, there is Peter Porco in a pool of his own blood. Ooh. Yes. Yep. He has blood all over him, all over his clothes, all over his socks. There's blood everywhere. When I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. I was going to put pictures of the crime scene on Instagram, but I'm not. The home of Peter and Joan Porco is covered in blood. There's blood all over the floor, all over the doors, up and down the stairs. I mean, there is blood everywhere. So, obviously, at this point, the authorities are called, and the quiet street of broccoli quickly becomes a whirlwind of police officers and medical personnel. Upon investigation, it's discovered that Peter, as well as his wife, Joan, have been attacked in the dead of night by an axe murderer. Are you texting? Like, what are you doing? I'm looking at the pictures of the bloody house. Okay. They're quite disturbing. I know they are. I told you they're disgusting. Like, there's blood everywhere. Yes. Everywhere extremely gruesome like handprints on the wall yeah there's blood everywhere everywhere peter was bludgeoned <laughs> bludgeoned <laughs> i was just joking peter was bludgeoned 16 times i was just making fun of Sterling again since apparently we heard his feelings we made fun of him last time he's a sensitive boy i know peter was bludgeoned 16 times with the axe 
and was nearly decapitated. That's a lot. Yep. Joan was upstairs in bed, and shockingly, she was still alive. Wow. Joan had been struck three times in the head while she slept. The damage to Joan's face was so severe that the medical team had a hard time figuring out where to put the oxygen mask as they could not find her jaw. So Joan was rushed to the hospital, and she did, in fact, survive. Wow. Oh, Joan. Okay, now, this is the part of crime that stuck with me, and I think this is the reason why you requested it. While Peter was severely injured by the blows of the axe, he did not die immediately. He suffered extreme damage to his neocortex, which is the outer portion of the brain. However, an autopsy later revealed that his paleocortex was completely intact. The paleocortex is the part of the brain that controls your primal instincts as well as your second nature movement. So, at some point during the night or very early morning, Peter regained consciousness. He then went about his daily routine. He got up. Um, he pulled on a clean shirt over his severely wounded head. He then headed downstairs where he made himself coffee and breakfast. He then went out the front door and collected the morning newspaper. When he did this, the door locked behind him, and he was able to fetch the hidden key out of the flower pot on the front porch and unlock the door with it, which is why the door was left ajar with the key in the door. Upon re-entering the home with his newspaper, it appears that Peter realized he was injured. He picked up the phone and attempted to call 911. Unfortunately, he did end up succumbing to his injuries at the foot of the stairs. The 911 call was not successful because somebody cut the phone lines outside of the house. Yeah, that is why I requested the case. It's just so crazy to me that he was hit with an axe 16 times. Is that what you said? 16 times? Yeah, 16 times. And he still got his bloody self up, dressed, made himself breakfast and coffee, got the newspaper. Like, that's just crazy to me. So he did the same thing every single day. It was just second nature to him. So his brain knew to get up and do those things, even though he was no longer left with reasoning. I mean... The main part of his brain was so, so damaged, but yeah, I don't know. It's just crazy that that's even possible. Well, it is because the forensic team was able to see all of his movements. I mean, right? Like he it, he was extremely bloody. There was blood everywhere. Like they yeah. saw the door handle, they saw handprints on the wall as he walked down the hallway, steadying himself because even like his balance was off because his brain had been hacked. Right? Yeah, it's insane. Okay, so back at the hospital, Joan's getting ready to undergo surgery for her injuries, and she has also regained consciousness. Uh, an investigator is able to briefly speak with her while they're prepping her for surgery. And while she cannot speak, she is able to move her head. So he asks her, can you hear me? And she shakes her head, yes. She, he says, did you see who attacked you? And she says, yes, shakes her head, yes. Do you know the person who attacked you? Again, she shakes her head, yes. Was it one of your children? Again, she shakes her head, yes. And then he says, was it Christopher? And she shakes her head, yes. Christopher Porco is Peter and Joan's 21-year-old son. He was a student at the University of Rochester, about three hours away. Peter and John also had a 23-year-old son, Jonathan Porco. The reason why the investigator didn't ask about Jonathan is because Jonathan was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, and he was serving on a nuclear submarine thousands of miles away. So there's no possible way that he was even in the vicinity to kill them. Christopher, however, was just three hours away. Police did question both sons. And both of the sons had alibis. Obviously, like I said, Jonathan was on a submarine thousands of miles away. And Christopher claimed that he had been in his dorm room all night at college. He actually said later, I don't know if this came out in the beginning or after, but he actually said that he was in his dorm room and then a visiting friend came. And so he actually gave them his bed for the night and that he slept in the common area. Oh, because that's normal. 
I mean, apparently it was for him, but I don't know. So did they ask her about the sons just because they were the closest relative or did they already suspect him? Or you uh, do know? Sure exactly what their reasoning was for asking her so soon about the sons. Probably just because they were the closest living relatives. Right. But there is definitely some evidence that comes forward pretty quickly in the case that leads you to believe it was someone very close to the family. Okay. So I don't know if they really knew that at this point yet, though, or not, because some of it involves, like, third-party subscriptions and, like, I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to get that stuff. That's why I'm just going to plug real quick. If you don't listen, if you've never listened to Crime Junkie, Crime Junkie has an If I Go Missing folder. And I think everyone should have that. I have one. I made Ashley fill one out. Um, I made Allison fill one out. I don't know if she actually filled it out, but I told her to fill it out. But anyway, it's got all of your like bank account logins, your cell phone logins, all of your social media logins. That way, if you're to go missing, all of that stuff is readily available to whoever you choose to be the person in charge of that. Um, and they don't have to wait for the police to like subpoena the cell phone records, you know? But anyway... So if you don't have that, head on over to crimejunkie.com and download their If I Go Missing folder. Comment. And just like your login stuff, it's like what routes you normally travel to work, where yep. you normally yeah, go, I mean, it's everything. your daily it's like, lives. Like, yes, yes. So they don't have it's to all question kind. people about that. They know it automatically. Right. right. It's literally like pages and pages of just very important information to get a jump start on an investigation if you were to go missing. And obviously, we don't want anyone to go missing. I would not wish that upon any of our listeners. But I just think it's a great thing to have in the event that it were to happen. All right, like, so anyway. If I went missing and they were like, where does Ashley frequent? My husband would be like, uh, she goes to a tanning salon somewhere in the greater Winston area. Right. Okay, thank you. for the That narrows it down to 45 different places. Yes. She goes and gets coffee. Where does she get coffee? I don't know. She just right. gets coffee. No, I agree. It's very good to have. So anyway, though, there's some, I don't know. I'm thinking that they must have, I don't know. There's some things. We'll just continue. You'll see. Sorry. Not trying to ruin it again. It's fine. You always ruin my cases. Anyway, the police did question both sons and they both had alibis. Unfortunately, though, that doesn't ex- does not explain why Joan named Christopher as her attacker. Uh, in the following weeks, the police investigate this horrendous murder slash attempted murder. The whole time, though, Christopher is very compliant with the investigation. He offers up DNA. And he also allows them to, like, check his body for signs of a struggle. You know, if he were to kill his parents, there would most likely be something. I mean, he killed both his parents. But he doesn't have any scratches or bruises at all. Three weeks later, Joan wakes up from her coma. Uh, I'm not sure if that was medically induced or just because, I mean, she had a lot of brain damage. It could have just been her body needing to recover. But she was in a coma for three weeks. She wakes up. And when she wakes up, she immediately recants her previous agreement with that police officer that Christopher did this. She said there's no way Christopher's responsible and that she wants them to leave him alone and figure out who really did this. So, initially when the detectives looked over the crime scene, they were able to determine that Peter was most likely the intended victim as he was struck 16 times versus Joan only being struck twice. I'm sorry, only being struck three times. Um, They also observed that there was nothing missing from the house. So while there are signs of a possible burglary, it's not likely. It's more likely that this was an angry crime executed by someone who was very angry with Peter. Well, yeah, he hit him 16 times with an axe. Yeah, exactly. But there are signs that it was a burglary, but like nothing like was what? nothing was stolen. We'll get to that. So whoever it was was extremely angry. Nonetheless, um, so there isn't any forensic evidence at the house. There's no foreign DNA in the couple's bedroom. 
So they really have nothing to go on as far as that goes. Uh, they also did end up searching Christopher's yellow Jeep Wrangler because, you know, even though now Joan says he had nothing to do with it, she did initially say it was him. So he's still a suspect. So they search his yellow Jeep Wrangler, but there isn't any forensic evidence in there either. Um, there's no traces of blood in the Jeep, and there's no evidence that there was ever, like, any bloody clothing in the Jeep. Uh, there's also no DNA or fingerprints found on the axe that was used in the murder, other than the DNA of the two victims. So again, we're just showing up with nothing. Um, they also have no evidence that Christopher made the trip from college on the night in question back to his house. So really, they have no evidence saying that Christopher did this, other than that Joan, you know, said he did it, and now she recanted. So as the investigation continues, the investigators do end up discovering that Peter Porco had received a death threat from a man who had lost custody of his children, and he had vowed to get revenge against Peter Porco as well as the judge on his case. So obviously, they look into that because it's a possibility, but that guy has a solid alibi, so they're not concerned. They don't use him. They don't list him as a suspect. Then there was a letter that was written to the local newspaper. The letter claimed guilt for Peter and Joan's attack. Um, they also claimed credit for another unsolved crime in the area. And they taunted the police, finishing the letter with, catch me if you can. Yeah. So unfortunately, that also doesn't pan out because in the letter, it says, like, I attacked Joan and Peter. I hit Peter with a small axe in the head. And in the neck. And um, I'll talk about it in a few minutes. But it was not a small axe. It was actually a three-foot fireman's axe. Ooh, that's a big axe. Yeah. So that doesn't really pan out. Unless this person was the jolly green giant, they did not hit him with a small axe. So anyway, they move on from that. They don't really think that that has much, you know, they think it's just somebody looking for attention. So then there's another theory that comes out that the police do look into that it could be mob-related. Apparently, there's a family member of the Porcos who's part of the Bonanno crime family. He's nicknamed... Frankie the Fireman Porco. So this is a fireman's axe. Right. Could make sense. The axe used in the Porco's attacks in the Porco's attack was a fireman's axe. So they think, you know, it could be a sign from another organized crime family. Like we did this because of Frankie the Fireman Porco. But that actually ends up being a dead end as well. Um, Frankie was actually in prison because Frankie was a no snitch. He refused to cooperate with law enforcement. Therefore, it's very unlikely that anyone would attack his family. He was literally in prison for not being a snitch. It's also discovered that the fireman's axe that was used was the Porco's fireman's axe. It was in their garage. They stored it there. I don't know why they had a fireman's axe, but... Do you not have a fireman's axe? No, I don't. Mm. I think it's normal. I think everybody should. You don't have one either, so... Maybe I do. No, you don't have a fireman's axe. No, I don't. I think I should get one, though. I mean, that's a big axe. Three feet? I don't need a fireman's axe. Yeah, that's pretty tall. Three feet is tall. Um, anyway, they also don't think it's very likely that an organized crime group would come to a house to kill two people and not bring their own weapon. Right. So, again, that doesn't really, that doesn't really pan out. So they keep doing their jobs, keep investigating. Then they find out that there is a life insurance policy on Peter and Joan, and that this life insurance policy is totaling a little over $1 million. Like that? The listeners couldn't see me put my pinky in my mouth, but you did. No. Um, so they also discover that prior to the murders, or the murder and attempted murder, Christopher just so happened to meet with a financial expert. Did he? Yes. He asked that financial expert to draw up an investment portfolio for him. And he claimed that he just so happened to have received a million dollars from a family member. Interesting timing. 
he wanted to in he he wanted to invest it wisely. I don't think you're being very wise, Christopher. I would agree. But obviously the heat's back on Christopher now. And it would appear at this point they actually do start to do some actual investigative work on Christopher. So um in doing so, they go through emails between Christopher and I don't know if they took Christopher's computer or I guess they probably took Peter's because he's dead, so he can't tell him no. Um but anyway, they find an email from Christopher to his father. The title is R-E dot dot, you know, the little. Yeah. What is that? Colon? Yeah, colon. R-E colon. Uh, so reply. Car loan payment overdue in all caps. It actually means regarding. And Christopher writes. Oh, does it? Yeah. It's not reply? No, I'm pretty sure it's regarding. Well, this was a reply message to his father from him saying the car payment's overdue. He replied. Okay. I think you're full of it. To the interwebs. Oh, <clears throat> these prefixes are usually automated inserted by the email client. RE or lowercase RE followed by the subject line of a previous message indicates a reply to that message. Otherwise, it may also stand for regarding a certain subject. But I'm telling you, this is a reply email. So we'll just agree to disagree. We- it, well, it may be B, but we're both right. So I send I'm send faxes at work. And when I do, I have to put RE colon and then a patient's name regarding patient maybe our capital e is reply and our lowercase e is regarding well maybe do you do our lowercase e or our uppercase e i guess our lowercase okay so there we go so this was our uppercase e which would mean reply back to the story so this is reply car loan payment overdue in all caps and christopher writes yo pops i paid it last week dot 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 i'm sure there is some delay comma And that's why you got a notice, period. I'm sorry, I'll quit doing that. Yeah, that's kind of annoying. I was was waiting for my new credit card to come through. The payment is now set up on automatic deduction, so there shouldn't be any problem. If I could, could I have you and mom's social security numbers and your state driver's license numbers? I need them for paperwork related to financial aid for next semester. Hope you're having a good day. Love, Chris. I don't know. Did you need mom and dad's social security number for financial aid? Did you fill that out yourself or did they do it? No, I filled it out myself. Did you need their driver's license numbers? I don't recall. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't really fill out financial aid until I was married, so. Um, and I, I did 100% need their socials. Okay, well, he wanted his parents' social and license and their driver's license numbers. I don't know that I needed the license numbers. I did need their socials, though, <sighs> 100%. I feel like that's something they normally fill out themselves, but whatever. I don't know. Mom and dad made me fill it out myself. Okay. I don't know. Well, they trust you. Clearly, Peter should not have trusted Christopher. Maybe. I don't know. We don't know that Christopher did it yet. We'll see. So anyway, the investigators then... Well, you know. I do know, but you don't know. (laughs) Investigators then deduced that whoever deactivated the alarm system in the Porco's home knew the master code, and they shut it off around 2 a.m. So that's what I was talking about, the third party thing. In order to get that information, they had to have contacted the alarm company because... Whoever deactivated the alarm smashed it with a hammer after disarming it in an attempt to destroy the evidence showing that the master code was used um, and also to make it look as though it was a burglary. They thought by smashing it, it would look like someone just smashed the alarm when they broke in. But that unfortunately was not the case uh, because newsflash, alarm security systems, it's like a whole interweb of stuff. And they sent that information to like a master computer and they have record of when the alarm is armed and disarmed. Thought that was common knowledge, but apparently not. I thought I thought so as well. But apparently whoever disarmed this alarm thought that it was just stored in the little panel on the wall. So they smashed it with a hammer. So that was one of the signs of burglary was the smashed alarm. Only people who knew the master code were 
the four por- the four porcos, Peter, Joan, Jonathan, and Christopher, and then possibly two very close family members. So we've got it down to six people, and two of those six people are dead. Okay. So one of those people is in a nuclear submarine on the other side of the country or the other side of the world. It didn't say where Jonathan was. He was just thousands of miles away. So it's not him. Wait, wait, So wait. now we've got it down to... You said two people were dead. I thought only one person I'm was sorry. Dead. I'm sorry. I meant two people were attacked. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. So anyway, only six people knew the code. Two of these people had been attacked with an axe, so it wasn't either of those people. That leaves us with four. Jonathan, Christopher, these two very close family friends... Jonathan is in a nuclear submarine across the country or somewhere. We don't know where he is. Thousands of miles away. So it's not him. So now we've got it down to three people that knew the master code. Interesting. Uh, the fact that some other information's coming out, it's looking good that Christopher did this, but whatever. So anyway, despite this sketchy info, they don't actually have any solid evidence on Christopher. So what do they do? They decide that it's time to try and pick apart Christopher's alibi. So Christopher claims that he was in his dorm over 200 miles away on the night of the attacks. They start watching security footage. They obtain security footage from the University of Rochester, as well as surveillance from all of the major highways and toll booths that would have been along Christopher's route of travel. In doing this, they discovered a bright yellow Jeep leaving campus at 10 p.m. Christopher drives a bright yellow Jeep. The security system was then disabled at 2.14 a.m. So math on that. It's a little over three and a half hours, which is how long it would take for him to travel from the University of Rochester to his parents' house in Delmar. Now, the home phone line was then cut at 4.59 a.m. So that's, uh, what, three hours later? Yep, about three hours later. Um, And then at 8.30 a.m., the same yellow Jeep is then caught driving back onto campus. And that's three and a half hours after the phone line was cut, which, again, is how long it would take to drive from Delmar to college. So obviously, it's not looking good for Peter. But he was dorm room all night um well right but he wasn't in his dorm room he was sleeping in the common area oh right because he gave his bed to a friend likely story who was visiting yeah so anyway um another thing that's really not looking great i feel like for peter and this is just me maybe overthinking but the alarm was disabled at 2 14 a.m but the phone line wasn't cut until 4 59 a.m so whoever attacked peter and joan was comfortable enough in that home to hang out for almost three hours unless they murdered Peter and attacked Joan left and they were like, oh shit, the phone line. Let me go back and cut that real quick. That's another reason why it looks like a burglary is because the phone line was cut. But the phone line was cut hours after they were killed. So again, whoever was staging this burglary had no idea what they were doing. Obviously, though, this timeline fits perfectly with the timeline that would be needed for Christopher to go home, kill his parents, hang out for three hours, come back to college. But was that yellow Jeep they saw Christopher's? That's the question at hand. Surprisingly, there are more bright-ass yellow Jeeps than you would think. Um, They said that there were literally thousands in New York State at the time. To me, it's shocking. I don't know that I've ever seen a bright-ass yellow Jeep in person. Have you? I don't think so. Yeah, well, apparently at the time, bright-ass yellow was a very common color. What year was this? They were 2004. I believe that. I mean, I believe it too, but apparently there were thousands. That's what Logan Eccles drove in Veronica Mars. Oh, was it? No. It was a bright-ass yellow vehicle. No, it wasn't a... It wasn't a Jeep. It wasn't a Jeep. It was like a Hummer. It was a... Yeah. Was it a Hummer? I don't know. But it was like that type of vehicle. Like a utility, fun, beachy, bright-ass yellow vehicle. It wasn't a Jeep. I don't think it was a Hummer either, though. It was like a Xterra. Ooh, Was it an Xterra? Yeah, that's what it was. I feel like those are the same class of vehicles. I mean, they might be the same class, but they're not the same car. I think it was an Xterra, though. You think so? Yeah, that sounds right. 
I'm, kind of, I'm trying to find the car to see. Yep, it was a Nissan Xterra. There it is. That random knowledge of yours again. Booyah. I know. That's what I thought it was just an Xterra. Okay, so anyway. So now they have to get to work trying to prove whether or not this was Christopher's Jeep that they see in this security footage. So through photographic analysis, they're able to determine that this is Christopher's Jeep. Um, they slow the frames down. And they're able to get stills of the Jeep. They were of the of the Jeep that they were like following on surveillance. And in these stills on the back tire of the Jeep, on the tire cover, there's a political sticker, like an oval political sticker. And while you can't perfectly make out what it is, you can see the colors of it. Um, and then they also see that on this specific Jeep that they're surveillancing, that the back window, it's a soft top. So the back window has like a residue where there was something stuck to it. Like you can see this residue, whatever. So they go and they look at Christopher's Jeep. And sure enough, on his back tire, there's an oval political sticker matching the same colors that you could see in this frame. And then on his passenger back window of his soft top, that residue is there as well. And it's where his parking pass for college was from the previous year. So they can see that in the stills. If you're going to commit a crime, be a little smarter, dude. Use some goo gone get rid of the stickers yeah no he didn't he actually did i do think he tried to cover his tracks pretty well though i mean there's nothing on the axe we still don't know that this was christopher just because his jeep was there doesn't mean he was there okay so my next line is even though it was christopher's jeep they have no proof of who was driving it so while they have no evidence that he was driving they do know that his vehicle left campus and returned in a matter of 10 hours in order for him to make the trip home kill his parents cut the phone line make it back to campus within that 10 hour window he had to use the new york state throughways there's no way around it there's no way he could make it in time unless he used those throughways now what does that mean do you know what that means if he used the th- blah, blah, blah. he used the throughways do you know what that means there are pictures well no no there's not pictures Try again. Oh, there's like toll booths. There's people. Yes, yes, yes. I forgot so, we were in the 2000s. There are still people in the toll booths then. I think there's probably still people in the toll booths. You don't think so? I mean, when I went, I don't know. They're not like our fancy toll booths here because we don't have toll booths. We have the fancy things in the sky. But I don't know. When I, me and Tyler went to um, Minnesota and we had to go through all kinds of toll booths. You, there were not people in like three-fourths of them. There were still some people in some of them. Okay. But like three-fourths of them, it like scanned your license plate and sent you a bill in the mail. Gotcha. Okay. Well, anyway, this is the New York State Thruways. So that means he went through toll booths and they were manned by people. When they searched Christopher's Jeep initially, remember they searched it for DNA evidence, his easy pass had been removed from his windshield and had been placed on the floor, which means that his easy pass was not being scanned as he drove through toll booths. So therefore, if he did commit this crime, he again did try to cover his tracks. Because that meant he went through the cash booths. He took mm-hmm. his easy pass down. So there's no electronic map of him driving the tolls. So that's where they go next then. So they go and they talk to all of the cash toll booth people. Because most of the booths are going to be the electronic with the easy pass. But they do still have, you know, like two cash lanes where people go through and they pay cash. That's for people that don't have an easy pass, out-of-state people, whatever. So they go, they start talking to employees in his route of travel. And they do actually end up finding a toll booth employee. I don't think I put it in here. Okay, this was an important part. I don't know why I left it out. So he went through a cash booth. And unfortunately, the cash booths do not have cameras. Right. The easy pass lanes have cameras. Because if someone goes through and they don't have an easy pass, it records their license plate. Right. And sends you an enormous bill. Yes. So, But the cash lanes do not have 
cameras because they're manned by people and the people have to manually open and close the little gate thing. So anyway, that's an issue. So they have to actually go and talk to all of these toll booth employees and see if they can find anyone who, you know, can give them any information. So they do actually end up finding a toll booth employee who distinctly remembers a yellow Jeep coming through her cash line. And she remembers because it was just before she was set to get off work. So she knows very specifically they came through. They were one of the last cars she served that night. Um, and she's so certain on a time frame that they actually are able to look and only 12 cars came through her line during this time frame that she gave. So when you go through the cash lane in a New York state toll booth, at least in 2004, I don't know about now, but they give you like a piece of paper, you know what I'm talking about? Right. And that you pay it like, yeah, well, no, they give you like, I mean, I guess, I don't think it's like the ticket that you turn in from booth to booth. Oh, right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the booth yeah. to booth ticket. So they give you a ticket and it's like, oh, I just checked it at this booth. Now let me give it here. And that shows that I traveled from booth right. to booth, whatever. And that's also because like they don't have them every mile. So like if you get on at a certain point, it's so that you pay per however long you're on, whatever. So they have a stamped piece of paper that they give you and then you turn it in at the next tool at the next toll booth. So anyway, that being said, they know the time frame. So they go ahead and they pull all of those tickets from this time frame that she gave. There's only 12 tickets during that time frame. So only 12 cars came through her line during the time frame that she claims to have seen the yellow Jeep. So they send the 12 tickets off for forensic testing, hoping to pull DNA or fingerprints off of them. Um, they do end up finding skin cells on multiple tickets. So they perform mitochondrial DNA testing on the skin cells and they compare them to Christopher's DNA sample that he gave them earlier. And wouldn't you know it, but one of the tickets is a match for Christopher Porco. I guess that. So he did, in he did in fact, travel the route needed to visit his parents the night in question. So possible it's not his DNA because it's always a possibility with that type of DNA testing. But they said that only 0.04% of the population would have been matched for that DNA. So it's very unlikely that it was someone else's DNA. So... Now that they have this DNA evidence, they do think that they have enough to move forward with an arrest and the prosecution and a prosecution. But the question is still lingering of why Christopher brutally attacked his parents. Million dollars. Ah, uh, that's not it, though. Okay. What is it? Then? This is a red collar crime, actually. Red collar crimes do not. Okay. Red collar crimes are crimes committed due to a financial issue. So like the financial part happens first and then the murder. Okay. So you don't, red collar crimes are not the crimes where you murder someone to collect their life insurance. Okay. That's not a red collar crime. Red collar crime is something financial happens. You get caught. You must murder. Yes. In order to get out. So the, the million dollars, well, nice is not the reason. You not must yes. not murder. That's a choice. They choose to murder. No, they have to. That's the only way they can get away with it. That's okay, but red collar criminals, red collar criminals are narcissists. They have no other choice. It's them against the world. Oh, okay. So anyway, it's not the million dollars. The million dollars is a nice little added bonus, but that's not why he kills them. Okay. So now they've got to figure out why. This is when the case takes another interesting turn. Uh, this is when they discover that Christopher has been leading a double life. Wow, Christopher. Yes. So at school, he lives a life of luxury. To his friends, he has a trust fund. Um, he has disposable income out the wazoo. He can blow money on whatever he wants. He tells tales of vacations at his family's vacation home in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Fancy. Yeah, I know, right? He tells them, I thought that was so weird. Like, oh, we have a vacation home in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Like, I just feel like there's better places to vacation. Not that the Outer Banks aren't beautiful, but like, they're in New York. Is it? Is it like, where is um scandalous scandal take place? Is that what's called? Scandal, yeah. 
I have no idea. I've yeah, never watched that, it. Like Hilton? Well, then that's not the show I'm talking about. Revenge? I'm talking about the blonde. Yeah, Revenge, that show. <laughs> the Hamptons. Where's the Hamptons. That's in New York. Yeah. Like, that's where trust fund kids are vacationing. The Outer Banks is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. My in-laws lived there for like two years. The Outer Banks is great, but I don't think trust fund kids are vacationing in North Carolina at the Outer Banks. I don't know. I've never been there. I don't know. I've never been a trust fund kid. I've never been there either, but <laughs> I assume it's nice. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's much nicer than we're giving it credit for. I don't know. Maybe. I just thought that that was weird, that that was the vacation spot he chose. Okay. Maybe he had to pick somewhere that other people weren't vacationing so he could keep up his charade. Maybe. That would make sense. He told them of his trust fund, and he told them of the million-dollar deals that his family did daily, when in fact, his family lived a comfortable life, but not one of luxury. As I told you, they lived in a $260,000 four-bedroom home, two-and-a-half baths. It was a nice house. Don't get me wrong. Like, they definitely weren't, you know, poor or, you know, They weren't slumming off. mattresses on the floor. Right. They definitely were not, you know, I mean, they had a comfortable life. They were doing well for themselves, but they were no trust fund family. So, Christopher got himself into some debt, a little over $40,000 worth. Just some debt, just a little. Yeah, just a little bit. So, in order to keep up this charade of a life he had fantasized, he ended up having to steal from his parents. That was the only way that he could, you know, keep this up. So, prior to the murders, the Porco home had broken into twice. Once in 2002 and once in 2003. Um, It's now believed... That both of those break-ins were staged by Christopher. Uh, Christopher also got into the business of selling items on eBay. And then he would fail to send the sold items. Trash bag. This is, this is fraud. When customers would reach out about the fraud, Christopher would then pose as his brother Jonathan Porco. And he would tell them that Chris had died. Oh. So they I'm wouldn't playing. be receiving their items. <laughs> yeah. He had an account, a Jonathan Porco account that he would email them and be like, I'm so sorry, Chris died. You're not getting your items. Nice. So I guess people were just like, okay, cool. I don't see how that worked, but whatever. Right. I think I would be like, okay, I'm not getting my items. Um, Refund from the bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, they discovered that he had this eBay account. There were things that had been stolen from the house that he then sold on eBay. So he did, in fact, stage those break-ins at his parents' house. He also stole from his place of employment. He worked at a vet's office. And he had stolen um, a cell phone, a computer, a camera, and he put all of those on eBay and sold them. So he was real a, tr- a trash bag, nonetheless. Not a very smart one either. I mean, he goes back and forth between his smartness, though. Because, like, he does do some things that are somewhat smart and then other things that are just stupid. Hmm. I mean, like, he thought, I mean, he didn't know that, you know, the code thing to the alarm was going to send it to, like, a mass computer. But he did attempt to cover that up. He also took down his easy pass to try to cover that up um he also left no dna evidence at the scene right so i mean he did attempt smart things but i don't know just backfired all around anyway it doesn't matter so investigators end up going through christopher's emails and that is where they find just how desperate christopher had gotten um there's a string of emails between christopher and his father i don't know i don't know what i was meaning to see here anyway um there's a string of emails and through the string of emails they figure out that christopher had been forced to drop out of college in the fall of 2003 due to his bad grades uh, he then had to enroll in a local community college. But once he enrolled in the local community college, he started flunking all of his classes there as well. So instead of working hard and turning things around, Christopher devised a plan to forge his transcripts from the community college and change his grades, thus allowing him to re-enroll at the University of Rochester. Solid plan, dude. Well, surprisingly, this plan worked and they did readmit him. Yeah, good plan. <laughs> all right. But that then brings us to the next dilemma that Christopher has to face. 
He lied to his parents and told them that he would not owe the university any money for the semester as one of his professors had lost his final. And that's why he had flunked out. He didn't actually flunk out. One of his professors lost his final. And so that's why he had a failing grade. So they weren't going to make him pay. Because that's how exactly how that works. Yeah. So his parents fell for it. But now Christopher has to come up with $30,000 to pay for his tuition, plus his Jeep payments. And he's also in, he's also gotten some debt from um, an online gambling addiction that he's developed. So essentially he needs a shit ton of money. Right. So what would any rational person do in this situation? Kill their dad with an axe. Um, no. If you guessed forging loan documents in your father's name, then you were right. I was wrong. Chris, you were wrong. <laughs> Christopher, we're not that far yet, Ashley. It's not, it hasn't gotten bad enough to need to murder his father. Oh, sorry. No. I'm jumping ahead. If, yeah. So Christopher took out a high interest loan totaling $31,000 in Peter's name. Hence why he wanted his social security number and license number in that email. That's the thing, too, is like, you were like, yeah, I've needed those before. Okay, but at this point, he was 21 years old. So he was a junior or senior in college. Right. And he's just now asking for those. It's most, it's very likely that he had never needed those before for, for financial aid. Or he just didn't save them like a bad kid like I did. I doubt that. I would say he just never did them or needed them. I don't know. If he was using financial aid, he definitely needed them. Okay, but maybe his parents filled it out with him. Maybe. Or for him. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. So anyway, I don't know because my financial aid has never asked for Jacob's information ever. And it has asked for mom and dad's information and it's never asked me for their social security numbers. 100% needed their socials. I think you're just a bad kid who wanted to commit fraud and take out loans in mom and dad's name. If I needed, if I did that, I wouldn't be in debt. Okay. Anyway. So anyway, let's move on. Um, This occurred just weeks before the attack. He had told Peter that he was going to take out a small loan of $2,000 for college textbooks and school supplies. But Peter told him, no, absolutely not. He offered to front Christopher the cash, but he said under no circumstance was he going to co-sign a loan for Christopher. Christopher misunderstood his father because instead of listening to that, he forged his dad's signature on a loan document for a $31,000 loan. So it's just a misunderstanding. Just a misunderstanding. I misunderstand that a lot too. I misunderstand no for yes. Yes. So Peter ended up finding out about this betrayal, as I'm sure you would when someone takes out a loan in your name. Right. Um, And that was on November 4th, just 11 days before his murder. Uh, He emailed Christopher, which I also just find this to be very funny. They just exchanged emails left and right. 2004 was a wild time. It's the same as like texting. I don't think it's the same as texting. You didn't email your parents? In 2004, I was just texting. No. I emailed mom once because I made her mad and she refused to speak to me. (laughs) And the only form of communication I had was email. I don't know that I've ever emailed mom before. I emailed mom once. I emailed out all the time, but it's business related. It's not, hey, dad, I just took out a loan for $31,000 in your name. Have a good day. Although that probably would be the best way to handle it if I did do that. <laughs> probably. So was I'm it, just saying. Was Christopher wrong? So anyway, all I'm saying is if I stole dad's social security number or mom's, took out a loan, they sure as hell would not be emailing me. Dad would be knocking on my door, beating the shit out of me. Yeah, definitely. Or at least calling me repetitively until I answered. Yeah. I think if I took out a loan for $100 in dad's name. I think if I took out a loan for a dollar. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. So it doesn't matter. Moving on. So Peter found out about this betrayal on November 4th, just 11 days before his murder. He emailed Christopher. He was pissed in his email. He confronted Chris and he told him, he confronted him via email. So real scary. He told him point blank, I did not authorize this loan. Did you forge my signature? What in the hell are you doing? Sexual words. Uh, I paraphrase, but yes, he did say, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) Okay. That did happen. He did say, what the hell are you doing? Okay. I mean, I paraphrase this is a very long email. There was a lot of emails and they were all really long and I didn't feel like it was all pertinent information. Probably not. So anyway, he 
then called Citibank, who the loan was through, as well as the university, and he instructed them to stop payments. Peter continued to email and call Christopher, but got no response. On November 5th, the next day, Peter found out that Christopher not only forged his signature on the massive $31,000 loan, but he also forged his signature on a new car loan. A new car? So not only... Or the same car? Yes. Oh. Yes. No, a new car. Well, I meant, like, did he refinance I guess. the car, or did he get a new car? He may have refinanced it. It didn't specify that, but either way, he got a new car loan. Okay. So he might have refinanced the Jeep. I don't know, but either way, he took out another loan in his doubt's name. Two loans. Not good. No. Obviously, this made Peter even angrier. Um, in emails that were presented at trial, Peter said to his son, you know, it's obvious that things are spiraling out of control. I did not authorize this loan. If you abuse my credit again, I will have no choice but to file forgery affidavits as not to be held liable for these fraudulent loans. So now we've reached the state of red collar because now Peter has threatened to out Christopher. That is when your red collar crimes take the turn. So this is again, November 5th. Uh, Christopher does finally respond to his dad on November 9th. So... At this point, it's been five days since that first email about the $31,000 loan, four days since the car loan email. The fact that, like, his dad didn't drive three hours and just beat the life out of him blows my mind. Yeah. Like, it's just crazy to me that he was just, like, nothing. But anyway, he responds to his dad November 9th at 1.14 a.m. He apologizes for what he had put his parents through and said it was never his intention to put them through difficult times. It wasn't your intention? To take out thousands of dollars in loans? No. It was never his intention to hurt them. Okay, but that is hurting them by taking out tens of thousands of dollars in loans. He didn't agree. So he said for the first time in his life, he felt like he had a handle on schoolwork and he was really just trying to do his best to be successful. And he signed his email stating that he loved his parents and that he was so thankful for them. Which was a lie. That's what he said. Okay, so Peter replied back in his final email to his son, telling him that regardless of what he had done, he loved him, even though he was disappointed in him. And that he couldn't help him solve his problems if he wasn't willing to talk things out with him. He then urged him to come home so that they could talk. And he signed the email, love dad. Thanks, dad. So obviously, it's very sad. It's not even the saddest part. I saved the saddest part for the very last line. It's going to make you cry. I don't want to cry. Okay, well, it's going to. So obviously, it makes sense that Christopher committed this heinous act of violence for that $1 million life insurance policy. But like I told you, red collar crimes, the financial aspect happens prior to the murder. So this was a murder as a result of being caught in the financial fraud. Because Peter called him out and told him, I'm going to report you for fraud, he had no choice but to kill him. No, he didn't. He was a narcissist. I'm telling you. It's narcissistic narcissistic tendencies. Another thing that's sad is that uh, they said, like, they wondered if the parents knew, like, that this was a possibility. And multiple co-workers of Peter's, because he had worked the same job pretty much, I mean, forever. He'd worked at the appellate court as a clerk, whatever. Multiple co-workers said that they had, that Peter had told them that Christopher was a sociopath. So, like, he knew that he was crazy. Like, he told them, like, that he had no emotion, that he was, um, par- like, a parasite. Like, he had said that. So, he definitely knew Christopher was not right, at least, but... Anyway, so now that they have a motive and they have enough evidence to convict, there's a trial. And this, to me, is also kind of crazy. So they say that during the trial that the area was split, some believing that Christopher was guilty and others thinking that he was innocent. There's no way he could do it. So to me, I don't see how you could not think he is guilty at this point. I mean, sounds like he's pretty guilty to me. So just in case you're still on the fence, there's an audio file that I want you to play. Um, Hopefully I can figure out how to get it in the episode. But if not, then I suck. <laughs> okay, pulling it up now. So essentially, hold on. Essentially, let me just read you this first and then I want you to play it. Okay. 
What happened is the day after the murder of Peter and the attack of Joan, a reporter called Christopher at his dorm room. He was hoping to take a statement from Christopher's roommate, thinking that Chris would be with his mom in the hospital. But Chris actually ended up answering the phone and he had no idea his parents had been attacked. This was the first he'd heard of it. So a reporter called him and told him his parents had been attacked. His mom was in the hospital. His dad was dead. So he then called the local police department to get information. And this is the clip of him talking to the police department. recording screams guilty yeah um like he has no emotion whatsoever he's like yeah so hey some reporter called told me my parents are dead you got any information on that right like not like like if oh someone said my parents are hurt do you have any information on that like that would be a little different right. if he was a little less emotional but like his parents are dead and he just is like yo what's up yeah no but he yeah he said hey like some reporter called told me my parents are dead like i don't know i would like to think that if a reporter called and told me mom and dad were dead that i would be like hello like i would be so a devil's advocate maybe he didn't believe them like maybe he was like maybe but that second guy confirmed it right like the second person he's talking to he's like so you're gonna meet me at albany medical then he's like i mean i guess yeah is my mom there like is she okay like he knows now by the time he talked to that second detective he knows his dad is dead and his mother is in critical condition at the albany medical center right and he's just like i mean i guess so i don't know to me that really just, the fact that he has no emotion, that somebody's just called and told him his parents are dead, just blows my mind. Uh, I said the issue I have with this clip is the lack of emotion. Um, I also said, I think that the like this clip is one of the main reasons why Christopher Porco was a suspect from the very beginning. Oh, that makes sense. Because the police officer that he called, like when he called the police station, they were like, wait a minute, like this kid has no emotion. So I think that that, and also I'm not sure of that, but the officer that he talked to was like, I don't know, I haven't seen her yet. I'm wondering if that possibly could have been the officer that went there and talked to her. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Like maybe that's why he asked about. But it did. Yeah. I mean, it did say that this clip is one of the main reasons why he was a suspect from the very beginning. So now that Christopher has officially been charged, things do not go smoothly for the prosecution. Um, His interrogation tape ends up being thrown out because the officers violated Christopher's Miranda rights. Uh, They continued to question him after, after he asked for an attorney. No, no on them. That's a big mistake. They also lose their only witness because Joan Porco continues to stand by her son. She even ends up paying his $250,000 bail. She's trying to be a good mom, but like at the same time, your son's... Devil's advocate. My parents, or my parents, my children have never attacked me with an axe. I don't know how I'll respond. Yeah. 
And maybe like he hit her in like did he hit her on the head? Maybe she had like some brain. I think I left that part out because of queasy stomachs. Um, I really should have put a disclaimer in here at the beginning too about how gross this was. Yeah, probably. We, I mean, we really haven't talked about that grossness. Okay, well, disclaimer: this is gross. I mean, it's not really this gross at this point. Um, he hit her in the head, and when the medical came in, they could see her brain. Okay, well, so like maybe she had like some memory loss. Maybe she doesn't like she remembered originally seeing right. Christopher, but then when she came back and said it wasn't him, like maybe she just didn't remember. I mean, maybe, but whatever. She paid us two hundred fifty thousand dollars bail. So while Christopher's out on bail, she continues to make poor choices. He's reported out at bars, slamming brewskis, and taking selfies with his adoring female friends because apparently females were just loving him. So he was taking selfies left and right with poor boy. His parents got killed with an axe. Yeah, well, he did it. So anyway, June twenty seventh of two thousand and six, Christopher's trial begins, and he is walked into the courtroom by his mother showing that she stands with her son, which is not great for the jury, for the jury to see that she's standing with him. I mean, that doesn't look great for the prosecution. Um, But it's now up to the prosecution to convince the jury that this 21-year-old boy conspired to murder his father and that he has no background of violence whatsoever. So it's going to be very difficult for them to prove. It's also going to be difficult to prove that he killed him in such a grotesque way. Like, this is an extremely violent crime. And, I mean, he's 21 years old. I understand he's an adult, but, like, some people still see that as a kid. Don't know how. 21 I mean, some people do. A lot of people saw him as still, I mean, a lot of people still saw him as, like, a young, I mean, a young adult, whatever. Like, still in a childlike manner. Like, he's still in college. Like, he's not a full adult. Oh, I guess not. He's not a real adult. Right. I mean, I'm not a real adult either. And I have three kids. And you're 30. I'm not 30. I'll be 30 in 20, 19 days. Close enough. All right. So anyway, anyway, um, so the thing though is, is it's actually extremely common in red collar crimes. More often than not, that there are there are never any signs of violence whatsoever until one day the perpetrator commits murder. Mm-hmm. Pretty much any red collar crime, they've never had any other violent streak in their lives. Right. They just like snap. They don't snap though. The thing is, is it's always there. It's always underlying. But they've never been put in a situation where, like, they've never been caught in their fraudulent financial issues so they've never it's not really snapping though like psychologically it's always there it's just never shown its ugly head i feel like that's the same thing okay in the end the jury does end up finding christopher guilty of secondary murder and attempted murder on december 12th of 2006 judge jeffrey berry sentences christopher to 50 years to life and he will be eligible for parole in 2052 christopher porco remains behind bars in the clinton county correctional facility To this day, he maintains his innocence. In 2010, he petitioned for a new trial, but that petition was denied. Joan Porco still stands by her son. And now for the most devastating part of the entire case, saved it for the very end, is how much Peter Porco loved and cared for his son. Even after the heartbreaking betrayal of the forgery and the theft, he continued to care for Christopher. I think that that's most evident by evidence that was found during the crime scene investigation. Lying on the kitchen counter, now covered in blood, there's a cashier's check for $100 made out to Toga Springs City Court in Christopher Porco's name, meaning that one of the very last things that Peter Porco did prior to being murdered by his son was ensure that his son's parking ticket was paid. Mm-hmm. That is sad. It's heartbreaking, right? Like when his brain isn't even functioning, he's taking care of Christopher. I'm not sure if he filled it out prior to his brain not being functioning or like maybe the evening before, but it was one of the last things that he did. Right. I was thinking, like, last thing he did after 
He was, no, it was just one of the last things he did. I mean, I don't know because I mean he made coffee, got the newspaper, he unlocked the door, so he very well could have filled it out. Well, and also I feel like if it was like on the counter, like clearly Christopher like hung out there for a little bit before he killed his parents, right? Killed his dad, so I feel like he would have saw it and took it. I mean, probably because I would assume that his father probably got up out of the bed after Christopher left, right? I can't imagine that Christopher like left his dad with his you know severe brain injury like walking around the house. So yeah, I don't know. All in all, though, it's a devastating story, and I hate that you made me tell it to you. Well, I wanted to hear it. I know you did, but it's just so sad. It is really sad. It is a devastating case. But most of them are. Yeah, but that's all I got, so. Well, thanks for telling me that. Problem. Thank you for making me sad right before I go to bed. No problem. Thanks for listening to me app for an hour. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Let's take some questions from our Discord. Sierra Rob 92 wants to know, what is the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? Sierra, that is you. <laughs> I know it is, but I asked in the Discord, which means we have to answer it. No. Yeah, you asked we're supposed to take Discord questions. I know. Go ahead, Ashley. No, I don't have anything. Most I don't have any embarrassing thing. That's not true. No, nothing embarrassing has ever happened to me. Okay. I'll tell... New game. You can tell the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me, and I'll tell the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you. I don't know the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you. Oh my my favorite really thing that you have done was that time you fell on the driveway. <laughs> At Dad's driveway. <laughs> and hit my head? And you hit your head, and you were like a ping pong ball going between <laughs> the truck and the trailer. The truck and the trailer. The truck and the trailer. And I died laughing, and then I got yelled at by Dad for laughing at you. Because you could have that's been funny. hurt. But you weren't, so it was funny. I don't know that this is your most embarrassing thing, but my favorite thing that ever happened to you is when you fell off your bike going down the hill. And you continued to hold on, so your hands were holding onto the bar, but your butt slid off the seat, so you were riding the wheel, and you were like, ah! ah! Like, bouncing on the wheel, and it was hilarious. I laughed and laughed. I did not get yelled at. You should have. It was so funny. See, I feel like these people are not going to find that as funny, because they were not there. I mean, maybe. You know what else I found funny, though? What? That time you peed yourself when I tackled you. (laughs) That was funny, and you know it. You shouldn't have tackled me. It was your fault. No, I was showing you my powder puff football moves. (laughs) Because you were so cool (laughs) in your powder puff. And I tackled you, and you peed your pants. Okay, but I peed myself because I was laughing. I know you were, but it was still funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Because you were, like, 12. (laughs) Too old to be peeing your pants. Probably. Mm. What are you doing? I was on our Patreon. Oh, I thought you were on our Discord asking a question. I don't have any questions to ask us. And I don't even know how you did that. (laughs) I went to the welcome to the week, the welcome to hashtag weekly dose of wicked chat. It's a text channel above the voice channels. I see it now. Yeah. What just happened? Did you type something? Read it out loud. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Read it. You have to read it. It's in the discord. (laughs) A runkles 96 says you are stupid, Sierra. And with that, good night. Good night, (laughs) a-hole. And with that, blocking you from the Discord. Uh, You can't do that. Yes, I can. No, you can't.
Yes, I can. <laughs> just a yeah, poop emoji. <laughs> Sierra Rob 92 reacted with poop. So there you go. All right. Peace out, Girl Scouts. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the flip side. Tune in next Wednesday when we cover a whole new dose of Wicked. Goodbye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard and want to support a small podcast, please give us money at www.patreon.com forward slash weekly dose of wicked where you can join one of our three tiers at the five dollar level we've got the moderately wicked for seven dollars a month we've got the awesomely wicked and for all of those high rollers big ballers out there we got the ten dollar level the extraordinarily wicked as a member of our patreon you are entitled to bonus episodes uh, you also get a one-time shout-out on our podcast, as well as some other cool little extra things going on there. So come on over. Join our fan club. Feel free to give us a follow on Instagram at weekly underscore dose underscore of underscore wicked, or you can literally just search weekly dose of wicked and we'll pop up because we're the only ones. For a direct feed of our podcast, please go to www.weeklydoseofwicked.buzzsprout.com Great news! You can now listen to us pretty much wherever you like to listen to podcasts. That's right, folks. We are big time. You can now hear your Weekly Dose of Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Plus Alexa, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Pocket Cast, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, Podcast Index, Overcast, Castro, CastBox, and PodFriend. The only place we can't seem to get ourselves on is Pandora. So we'll let you know when that happens. In the meantime, make sure to come back next Wednesday for your Weekly, weekly Dose of, of Wicked. wicked. But um, psh.